Go back talking about David Johnston's uh, sudden and surprising resignation, a special rapporteur on the foreign interference matter, which I, I think really cinches that this would become uh, a fiasco for the government. The appointment of David Johnston or standing by him through all of this, uh, ignoring the expressed will of the House to have him step aside and to hold a public inquiry. And now here we are. Now, David Johnston appeared before a Commons Committee last week, insisted that he was going to stay on. There was no need for him to resign. He was going to continue with his work. And so late Friday, I think that's why we were all surprised that uh, David Johnson had submitted his letter of resignation uh, to the government. So how did it get so messy? Where do we go from here? Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Andrew Coyne, columnist for The Globe and Mail. His latest up at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. Do you have any thoughts or any kind of an understanding as to to what changed, what changed late last week, how we went from David Johnston sort of defiantly telling this committee he wasn't going anywhere, the government saying he wasn't going anywhere, to him resigning? Uh, It's a very interesting question, and I I don't know the answer to it. Uh, um, You know, oftentimes with these kinds of decisions, it's not necessarily made by the person who claims to be making it. I, I don't have any evidence of that in this case, but I would just be alert to that possibility that the government may have decided that this could not continue because they had to look at their polls or what have you. But it remains an interesting question, what would have changed in just those those few days? Uh, it seems like everything they knew prior to this, they, you know, everything they knew at the time that he made this decision, if he made it, was made, that, that, that all that stuff was known before. So it is interesting why there was the sudden change of mind. Why was it the right decision for him to resign? Because he did not have the confidence of the people he needed to have the confidence of. And that's partly to do with his own um, failings and his own experience that was made him inappropriate for the job. And, and partly because the whole process was wrong. You know, if let's go back to the beginning. The onus was on the government from the start in this. Why do I say that? Because... There were credible allegations, multiple things coming out of intelligence sources saying that China had been messing around with our elections and had been doing so expressly for the purpose of benefiting the government and hurting the opposition. Any government in that position, because they have power, they also have the responsibility to husband and steward the public trust, to make sure that people don't have reason to doubt about the integrity of our election process. So it was incumbent upon them from the start to clear the air to make it clear that no, they had nothing to hide, to make it clear that they wanted nothing to do with this, they, they were not, did not, were not the intended beneficiaries, or certainly didn't want to be, to go, they had to go the extra mile to bring people into their confidence. And part of that was reaching out to the opposition. When you've got an allegation in a democratic state where power is contested between, two, you know, two or more parties, it is really important at that moment to make sure that all the parties are on the same page. And the first thing they should have done, the first thing the prime minister should have done would have been, should have been to go out and answer everybody's questions about what did he know when, uh, why didn't they respond to these things? Did they just not know about them? Why didn't they do anything? He should have held press conferences. He should have gone before a parliamentary committee. And if that sounds naive, that just shows how far we've fallen. But the second thing he should have done would have, should have been to call a public inquiry and to have consulted with the opposition leaders uh, on who should lead it. And if he was bound and determined not to do either of those things, but just to appoint his own person, then he should have gone to the ends of the earth to find somebody who didn't have multiple personal and professional associations with him and his family. And he failed in all of those things. So the onus from the start 
uh, was on the prime minister on this, and it is the prime minister's responsibility. That's why we are in this mess. Poor old Mr. Johnston, who I think showed bad judgment in taking the job, should have known that with all these conflicts doesn't mean he's a bad person. It just means he, he shouldn't take that kind of case. You know, if, if this was a judge and, and somebody came, you know, a, a judge could be the most highly respected judge of all time, but he'd never be allowed to sit in judgment of a case involving a friend of this. It's just axiomatic. Right. So I feel badly for Johnson for, for sort of walking into the middle of this. But this notion that the government's been trying to put about that, well, the problem here wasn't that we made an inappropriate appointment. The problem is that the opposition objected to it, and this just shows how toxic and partisan our politics have become. Uh, they need to look in the mirror. Well, you raise a really interesting point because I, I, look, I think David Johnson has done some damage or allowed some damage to be done to his own reputation. But in terms of why he was hired, right? And so, yes, everybody agrees he had, had a great reputation, but... Was that really what you wanted in somebody to do this job? We weren't looking for the best investigator or the most knowledgeable person on this subject matter. The, the government chose somebody with a good reputation to kind of That's hide right. behind. That's right. They, 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 they did not hire him for his skills as a forensic investigator. They hired him because he had a good reputation and they thought that would rub off on him, on them. And if it didn't, it was a kind of a heads I win, tails I lose. Heads, heads you know, everyone is so cowed by his reputation and his, and his resume that that you know he'll he'll make he'll make some high-minded recommendations that won't really change anything. But everyone will go along with that and will put this behind us. Or if they do raise objections, then we talk about how isn't it terrible how low our politics is sunk and how dare you attack the, the integrity of this good man? And everybody or a lot of people got hornswoggled by this confusion of saying. Uh, 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 if a person is a, a person of, of high character and integrity, then the conflict of interest laws don't apply to them, which is crazy. Hmm. Right? The conflict of interest laws do not make exemptions for very good men. They, they, they apply to everybody. You, the, the rule is you can't get into a conflict. It's not you can't get into a conflict unless you've got a sterling character and pedigree. Uh, and, and, and so a lot of people fell into that trap, but not enough to save the government's bacon no, because it feels like this has just become a political disaster for them. And maybe that's that's becoming a, a pattern with this government. Uh, we, we sort of think of them as, you know, strategic geniuses uh, at times. And maybe, you know, in an electoral sense, that may be true. But you know, when it comes to dealing with important matters, I, I don't think we've seen a lot of evidence of strategic genius. Certainly not here. They, they really have made a mess of this. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the strongest thing you can say in their defense is, is one theory would certainly be that they genuinely, and the prime minister in particular, genuinely doesn't understand the concept of conflict of interest, that they live within such a bubble. And I, 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 this will sound over the top, but, you know, if you've been around liberal Ottawa long enough, they've been in power long enough. They have so many self-reinforcing circles and loops telling them that they are the natural party of government and in the current incarnation are the sort of highest virtue uh, around that it, you really could get into a situation where you just didn't understand how things look from outside that circle or indeed that there were people you could draw upon from outside that circle. So we keep getting in these situations where, you know, he accepts uh, paid trips to the Aga Khan's island when the Aga Khan has business before the government or, or you know, they steer money to uh, to uh, 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 the WE charity that had all kinds of ties with the Trudeau family again. Uh, you know, there it, it, it does seem to be a pattern, you know, in that respect. Uh, and then, in, the, in you know, in this particular case, they, they, they seem to be only now catching up to what they should have been doing in the, in the first place. 
So now they're talking about, let's have a public inquiry. And now they're talking about, aren't they magnanimous? Let's bring the opposition into it, yeah. uh, which is the, where this should have absolutely started. Up. Or I noticed, for example, now they're having an inquiry into the MP Han Dong, around which there have been allegations made, you know, fair or false. Uh, uh, and 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 maybe, and I hope certainly hope and pray that the result of that inquiry is to exonerate him. But you know, there was enough there that they should have had those inquiries at the time when the ops, when, when the intelligence agencies were raising these questions, rather than you know only now after among other things his name has been dragged through the through the mud. So is a public inquiry now inevitable, or or should we be even still at this point careful about making such assumptions? I, I think that's a, a, an open question. Uh, I, I think that you, you could look at some of the rhetoric that we're hearing now from Dominique Blanc, who's sort of the prime minister's point man on this, and suddenly he, it's not uh, we're going to ha- have a public inquiry and we're going to consult with the opposition on who should lead it in the terms of reference. It's you, the opposition, you name the person, and you decide the terms of reference. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, if, if there weren't a lot of, lead up to this of, of reasons to doubt their good faith on this, you might say, well, isn't that very open of them? But at this point, it, you could equally look at that and say, um, they're setting this up where they'll, they'll say, uh, you know what, we, we, we had these talks about a public inquiry, but we couldn't come to a consensus uh, on who should lead it, and so therefore we're going to go back to our original plan. You remember that's how he disposed of the electoral reform promise. Well, there wasn't a consensus on how we should proceed, which was um, a bogus and B a, an abdication of leadership. So let's stay tuned. Now, I, I absolutely do think the opposition, uh, um, to the extent that the government, you know, is, that there's any reason to think that there's good faith in this, and and you start with at least some assumption that that there's actually going to be good faith negotiations on this. The opposition has a duty to show up to that uh, and to enter into these discussions, and the public will be able to judge. I hope. Mm-hmm. I hope we get enough information to be able to judge. Uh, who's arguing in bad faith and who isn't. And it's certainly entirely possible that the opposition could also play silly games with this. And if they do, they deserve you know, all the criticism they'll get at that point. So what we need at this point, what the country needs, is for all sides to come to the table and quit playing games with this and get serious about a, a real public inquiry. The government uh, should have done so from the start. Uh, they were wrong not to. The opposition were right to have called from it from the start. Uh, they need to follow through on that now and not play games with it. And let's get a proper public inquiry out of this. Absolutely. Much more is mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, appreciate it uh, as always. Thanks for joining us here. My pleasure, Rob. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Andrew Coyne, columnist uh, for The Globe and Mail. Got a great piece today uh, on, on all of this and the headline that David Johnston Mass is Justin Trudeau's responsibility, which might seem like an obvious statement, but sometimes the obvious needs to be noted here. You know, this all lies at the feet of the government. They chose this path. They stuck to this path, even as it became increasingly clear that this was not a tenable path. And now the sudden reversal here. Now the sudden openness to a public inquiry, the sudden openness to hearing some input from from the opposition. It is really strange. I'm I'm not sure how we got to this point. Uh, Here we are. We'll see where it goes from here. Right, welcome back. Uh, there is at least now some talk in Ottawa that maybe we'll finally get a public inquiry into Chinese interference, what the government knew, what it's doing or needs to do uh, in response and, and didn't do in the past. So hopefully that happens. You know, one of the, the concerns with uh, David Johnston's work was 
Uh, the decision to neglect, to not speak to uh, the diaspora community and some of these groups uh, who speak for that community, who have been pleading with the government to hold a public inquiry and were really hoping to to lay out their concerns to David Johnston and in the way in which they've been targeted and intimidated uh, by Chinese officials. So I do want to talk a bit about that issue with our next guest, but something else important uh, that, that needs to be highlighted, and it concerns slave labor, forced labor, and where Canada's approach and Canada's laws are lacking, the concern that we're becoming a dumping ground for products that are the result of forced labor, in particular what's happening in China's Xinjiang region, which is where uh, the, the bulk of China's Uyghur Muslim population is concentrated. Canada's parliament has already declared that what is happening to the Uyghurs in China is genocide. Part of what's happening to them, though, is forced labor. Now, yesterday, Canada's Minister of Labor, Seamus O'Regan, marking the World Day Against Child Labor, said that Canada will introduce legislation next year to eradicate forced labor from Canadian supply chains. But advocates say we need a much more urgent response. Joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Mehmet Tonti, who is executive director with the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, urap.ca is their website. Uh, Mehmet, thanks so much for joining us here. You're welcome. Uh, first of all, how, how bad is the problem when it comes to forced labor uh, in this part of China and how much of that, so the product that results from that is, is ending up here in Canada? Uh, uh, let me put it in this way. Uh, 33% of the global copper supply is coming out of the region. And more than 25% of global supply of tomato paste or tomato-related products are coming out of the region. And more than half of the global supply of polysilicon grade, which is used to make a, a solar panel, is coming out of the region. If you put it in this way, in this perspective, it is huge. And we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. And plus, because of the Chinese ongoing genocide committing against the Uyghur people since 2014, and millions of people placed in concentration camps, and some of them transferred, again, some means, millions, to another part of the mainland China and scattered all across and forced them to work for free. Mm-hmm. And it's called Uyghur forced labor. And because the issue is so huge, the U.S. Congress passed a specific legislation, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and start to implement that legislation as of last year. And in Canada, the government of Canada also realized the severity of the problem and instead of taking a real action, uh, on January 12, 2021, just issued an advisory and asking the Canadian companies to exercise due diligence. Right. And since then, we keep our custom doors open. And the United States custom uh, confiscated more than 5,000 shipments so far. And in Canada, we did none. And all shipments tainted with Uyghur forced labor are coming out through our custom border and uh, now effectively making Canada as a dumping ground. Right. So the United States is getting serious about this. They're cracking down, but Canada really isn't. We're not really doing uh, enough at this point. 
And Canada is basically uh, violating its own domestic law at the same time. The trilateral agreement signed between United States, Mexico, and Canada, the USMCA agreement, because in that agreement there is a provision to ban any products made by the use of forced labor or hired labor enter the North American market. And the United States, as you said, at, uh, already starts to take action. But Canada, we are keeping the doors open. And also we are part of the, the International Convention against child labor and slave labor. And we are a party to slave labor, uh, uh, anti-slave labor uh, convention of the United Nations. And it's still, and I, I, I don't know, uh, uh, because lack of the, the will from the government or lack of action from the legislative branch, and still we are discussing this issue without taking on a real action to stop it. What about companies here in Canada? I know there's concern with one clothing uh, manufacturer, distributor. They've got a facility that's uh, been open recently uh, near near Toronto and Markham. Uh, but concern's been raised about where they're getting the supplies for their clothing, where this cotton's coming from. So it appears as though we have companies in Canada that, that might be a part of the problem, too. Yes, of course. And uh, the United States now not only uh, putting pressure on the importers just to with the legislation, and uh, they are also putting pressure on uh, the U.S. corporations to stop importing products tainted by the use of forced labor. And so the Chinese government is acting in a smart way and diverting those uh, mechanism or a supply chain to Canada so that the same products made by the use of forced labor enter the United States through our land border. And so uh, the specific company we are talking about is Shane. Shane is the huge uh, the company, online retailer, just like Amazon, and primarily selling uh, clothing products. It is the biggest. And so basically all cottons that Shane company is using to manufacture those clothing products that are made or harvested by the use of Uyghur forced labor. And for that reason, there is ongoing investigation in the United States. And when there is a pressure from the United States and other countries on the company Shane, and now in Marham, Ontario, the company decided to expand its, uh, its base and uh, just to make that uh, the base as a huge distribution hub to North America. Mm-hmm. And that is the huge concern for us. And for that reason... We went to the, in front of the Shane and Marham Ontario on, on this weekend, the last weekend, and we protested. And we are also uh, working with the parliamentarians to address this issue. And it should be unacceptable for all Canadians. The number one, just allow that company to expand its base and uh, making, uh, making it as a distribution hub for North America. And because they are using Uyghur forced labor, and secondly, we should kick that company out because and we are talking about to eliminate any forced labor products from our market as of 2024. Just it is six months away. If we do not t- take action now, and how we can clean up our market? All right. 
Well, as you say, there's a need for new legislation, but even under Canada's existing laws, there are things we could do or things that the Canada Border Services Agency could do under existing Canadian laws. So is it also about enforcing the laws we already have? Yeah, of course, and you are absolutely right. As I said, not only the existing law, but just because of the trilateral agreement we have with the just recently signed USMC agreement, there is a clear provision to ban any products made by the use of Uyghur forced labor entering the North American market. And Canada is part of the North American market. And we are not only committed, at the same time we, we signed that agreement and we pledged to enforce it. And when it comes to China, when it comes to the relationship with the, the Uyghur forced labor, and somehow the government is acting heavily and without taking any real action, only providing a sort of lip service to extend the implementation or action part to next year. And if we can do it next year, why we don't do it right now? Yeah. It's just because the products are coming to our market with the forced labor, and the most importantly, and as a Canadians, intentionally, intentionally or un, in, unintentionally, we are supporting or we are subsidizing the Communist Party of China and its policy of uh, forced labor. And it should be unacceptable. Uh, Mehmet, I also wanted to ask you about the issue of Chinese interference in Canada. And, and I know your organization, as well as others from the diaspora community, uh, have been speaking out about this issue, the sort of intimidation uh, that you've been subject to uh, by China's government, and, and how we need to address this, how maybe a public inquiry is necessary to, to really uh, solve this problem. W- what are your thoughts on now, I guess, whether we're likely to see a public inquiry, why you think it's, it's so important? Uh, the public inquiry is must, and we have to uh, realize at this point. The reason is simple. If you get a problem, you you go to doctor, and the doctor, before prescribing any uh, medication or treatment plan, uh, the doctors will go through a series of diagnosing process to identify a problem. And without identifying that problem and the severity of your health issue, uh, it is important it is impossible to give you any prescription. Similarly, now we don't know what is the scope of this infiltration and interference and how far it, it, it reached and why it is, it is reaching to every single cell of our the government machinery. And also we don't know how widespread it is yeah. and if there's any action taken by the government or if there is action uh, the government is going to take, whether those actions are adequate to address the issue. We know nothing, and uh, and, uh, there are more questions than answers. And uh, secondly, we are only talking about uh, the election interference. And when we say the Chinese interference, it includes, or it should include, the transnational repression of Chinese government beyond its territorial border, abduction of Canadian citizens and their family members, operating illegal police stations to monitor and surveil the Canadian citizens, and uh, operating the United Front departments, the affiliate organization of Chinese Communist Party in Canada. At the same time, the intellectual property theft. The issue is much bigger than just election interference. So unless we have this uh, full account of public inquiry, we cannot get the bottom of it. 
And we have to get the bottom of this problem. We have to identify all problems, and we have to identify the loopholes and the system, uh, the shortcomings in, in our system, and we have to find out the effective measures, include those measures or incorporate those measures into legislative or administrative uh, the tools just to address it. Otherwise, we are only talking about the surface, and we are only scratching the surface. We are only providing a lip service to get get the days pass without doing any effective action. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, meanwhile, as mentioned, much more at urap.ca, the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. Uh, Mehmet, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Rob. Thank you. Welcome back. It's been a lot of talk, uh, not just in Calgary, but elsewhere across the country, but certainly here about housing availability, housing affordability. There was a whole big kerfuffle last week at City Hall regarding the recommendations from the uh, Affordability Task Force. And uh, we'll see where that all goes from here. Uh, But no doubt, look, I mean, you know, Calgary's uh, market is hot. Certainly the rental market is hot right now, you know, with growing demand and not enough supply. Uh, The latest numbers from Rentals.ca, their June rental report, shows that uh, the average rent in Calgary on a one-bedroom apartment jumped uh, 13.5% year-over-year, and for a two-bedroom, 14.5% year-over-year. Although the month-to-month increases have been relatively low, 1.6% on a one-bedroom, 0.4% on a two-bedroom. But year-over-year, those are big increases. Now, it's also worth noting, by the way, that in the Rentals.ca uh, National Rent Report, Calgary is actually down at 27th when it comes to cost, right below Montreal and just ahead of Winnipeg. And that's 27 out of 35 markets. And most of the uh, most affordable markets are indeed in Alberta, Calgary, Red Deer, Edmonton, Lethbridge, and Grand Prairie. So you got Toronto, Vancouver, actually Vancouver ahead of Toronto. $2,800 average rent on a one-bedroom in Calgary. That average is 1632 But like I say, those numbers are going up. So that's meant rent increases at a time when, you know, people are struggling with cost-of-living increases elsewhere. So why are we seeing these increases? What's driving the demand here in Calgary? What, if anything, can or should be done about it? Well, joining us to talk more about what's happening in Calgary, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jerry Baxter, Executive Director with the Calgary Residential Rental Association. Jerry, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much, Rob. It's nice to chat with you again. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us here. So what's what's driving these increases? Why is Calgary's uh, rental market so heated right now? Well, I think uh, one of the things uh, that's really driving it is the uh, fact that we've just come off of uh, between seven and eight years of a recession in Alberta Mm -hmm. and COVID. And uh, during those periods of time, landlords uh, uh, really struggled uh, to make ends meet. Uh, They struggled to uh, uh, pay all the bills. Uh, They weren't able to sort of keep up with the uh, with a normal rent increase uh, each year. And so consequently, they fell behind. And about a year ago, uh, this spring, uh, the market started to change. And when the market changed, we started to see rents increase. And landlords simply trying to play catch up and uh, start to pay the bills and get back to uh, get back to some sort of normalcy. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And, and with higher interest rates, higher utility costs, the, these are all things that not just renters have to deal with, but, but landlords too, right? Well, you're absolutely correct. You know, uh, you've got not only the utilities, the insurance, uh, there's been some significant insurance increases for many of our members uh, over the last few years, uh, the city and its property taxes. Uh, my goodness, you know, in 2020, we actually lobbied on the steps of City Hall to get the council to uh, provide some relief for property taxes that that year were ranged between 20 and 75 percent. I mean, that's obscene. Uh, but council decided that uh, they wouldn't do anything. And so, you know, each year, if you're facing 10 to 15 percent, 20 percent increases, just in property taxes, um, and you haven't got enough income because everything is uh, so difficult and so tight, uh, you can see that at some point in time, you have to turn around and increase rents just to try and recover some of the losses that you've taken, property taxes, utilities. Interesting thing, too, you know, is construction and maintenance costs have all increased. Supply chain issues impacted landlords. Many uh, service uh, providers to landlords uh, started charging gasoline surcharges on their bills when gasoline increased significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and still through all this, landlords still have to pay their staff. In so terms it, of the, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, in terms of the available available supply, I would imagine some of the factors you're describing might have, you know, sent some people out of the, the business altogether, discouraged uh, landlords from, from getting into the business. But has, has supply failed then to keep up with the demand? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what we have right now is we have a, we have a huge supply issue. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, at the end of uh, 2022, uh, there were about 6,600 rental units in the construction uh, queue waiting to be built. So some of those may have been uh, and may have been built and come online now, but 6,600, that's uh, uh, quite a significant uh, amount. But it's still nowhere near what we need. And the more supply you have, it drives down the, the demand because it's spread out and rents will come down. What do you make of these these calls then for some kind of intervention, rent caps or rent control? What kind of impact do you, do you think that would have? Well, you know, these are probably one of the most devastating things that any politician can inflict on an industry. Uh, my goodness, we, we know we've done a tremendous amount of research and there's so much research out there that tells you how bad rent controls are and it tells you what the unintended consequences of rent control are. And one of the, one of the, uh, the major uh, unintended consequences is that uh, construction starts to dry up. Uh, it, rent controls discourage the construction of new properties, new buildings. In fact, uh, uh, something I read recently looking back at, uh, at the Ontario uh, Issue. You know, in, in Toronto, uh, 1975, they introduced uh, rent controls. By 1977, there was no apartment uh, building or construction taking place. None. We don't want to see that here. Rent controls have a proven history of working against affordability. And you can see that in the rentals.ca 
report. Uh, not only is Calgary ranked 27th, but you can see that um, the truly the the most rent uh, affordable and rent friendly jurisdictions in Canada are in places where there are no rent controls, and that's Saskatchewan and Alberta. Yeah. And the top uh, 19 of the top 20 are in either Ontario or BC. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the the best thing that we can do is let the market sort itself out. And I know that doesn't sit well with a lot of people who have faced uh, significant uh, uh, rental increases. And um, But listen, you know, uh, whether you own a home or whether you rent, we're all in the same boat. Inflation is really hurting everybody. My heart also goes out to all of those homeowners that have variable mortgages with the increases in the interest rates. Um, like everybody is is feeling the pain. Everything mm-hmm. has gone up. It's costing us more to live. So what can we do to add more supply? And, and like I say, this this was a you know, big topic of debate last week at City Hall as they were looking at these recommendations from the, the uh, Task Force on Affordability. But uh, what, what can we do to try to keep up with demand? Well, I think one of the things is, first of all, you leave the market alone. Because the one thing that uh, I think people forget is we want if we want more affordable housing, the government alone cannot afford to build everything that's required. You need public investment. You need that private sector investment. And if you're going to implement rent controls, you'll kill that investment and people won't build. They'll take their investment dollars and go somewhere else and put them into uh, uh, some other uh, investment model. So I think what we need to do is leave the market alone. And uh, we, as an association, uh, we have uh, we have a lot of people in our association uh, who've been through this many times, a great deal of knowledge, expertise, experience in operating rental properties, and uh, we're more than willing to bring to, to the table and talk to uh, uh, to anybody, the, the city, uh, the province, anybody, and share our experience, and we can bring a lot of smart people to the table so we can talk about specific strategies that might help to build. Um, We want more affordable housing, and Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we get there. But the city alone is not going to be able to do it. The province isn't going to be able to do it. You need the private sector to get involved, too. So let's work together. Absolutely. Much more at CRRA.ca. Jerry, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Rob. Take care. Likewise. You as well. Appreciate it. Uh, That's Jerry Baxter, Executive Director of the Calgary Residential Rental Association. So uh, their perspective on what's happening in the market and how we try to address the imbalance in supply and demand. Now, it is worth noting again that when you look across the country, Calgary and other jurisdictions in Alberta are relatively quite affordable. But that's of little solace, I suppose, if your rent has gone up 13 or 14 percent over the last year. That, that's more out of your pocket. And that's a lot of pressure on households that are dealing with all kinds of financial pressures. But if we think that rent caps are the answer, why is it then that the most expensive jurisdictions in Canada are in jurisdictions that have rent control policies and the bottom, the most affordable, now with the exception of Quebec City, are in jurisdictions that don't have such policies. So again, the most affordable jurisdictions out of 35 in this uh, national rent report from rentals.ca, Grand Prairie at the bottom, 
then Regina, Saskatoon, Lethbridge, Edmonton, Quebec City, Red Deer, Winnipeg, Calgary at 27th, uh, Montreal at 26th. So yes, uh, of Canada's uh, big cities, you know, Calgary's uh, pretty affordable, $1,632, the average rent on a one-bedroom apartment. Now, it's interesting the difference between Calgary and Edmonton because in Edmonton, the average is 1176 so just under $1,200 in Edmonton. So difference uh, of over $400 a month on a one-bedroom apartment. Now, again, the idea of rent control, that would be provincial. So why would we see such a difference between Calgary and Edmonton? Are, are landlords just more generous in Edmonton? Probably not. Right. So I think, you know, and others have pointed to this, that Edmonton has done a better job when it comes to addressing supply. And, and maybe there's less demand, you know, when folks are flocking to Alberta, maybe they're more inclined to, to come to Calgary than to Edmonton. But anyway, it's an interesting uh, discrepancy there. And yeah, as mentioned, the top of the list, Vancouver, 2,800 on a one bedroom, Toronto, just over 2,500. Uh, all the jurisdictions in the top 10 are over $2,000 a month. On a one-bedroom apartment, you have to go down to 13th, Ottawa, at uh, 1,972. By the way, all the jurisdictions uh, in the top 10 have seen higher year-over-year increases than Calgary, with the exception of Burlington and Etobicoke. But Vancouver, 16% increase year-over-year. Toronto, 17.5. Burnaby, 18.2. Mississauga, 19.2. Vaughan, 25.8. Scarborough, 27.1. Guelph, 26.9. So some huge increases in other jurisdictions, again, where there are rent control policies that exist. So that's interesting. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Had a text just come in, say, Rob, what a timely segment you have coming up. I just got a bunch of texts from my 16-year-old who's nagging me about something while he's supposed to be working in class. Now, it's kind of the end of the year. I don't know how much working in class is actually getting done, especially, uh, you know, the 16, 17-year-old age range. But yeah, I mean, you know, the whole issue here of cell phones in the classroom, kids have their cell phones with them constantly. They are a part of their lives, for better, for worse. But they're clearly a distraction. Like if, you know, at home, if your kid's supposed to be doing homework and you see that they're on their phone, they're clearly not doing their homework, right? So they they distract kids from the task at hand. So how do we need to deal with that in the classroom? It's a lot to put on the teachers, uh, to be the, the cell phone police. And I think, unfortunately, what we see is that, you know, these policies tend to vary, and probably even from classroom to classroom. Some teachers might have rules within a school. Maybe other teachers have other rules. Uh, we have seen increasingly schools, though, taking the approach that, no, kids should not be on their cell phones in the classroom, whether that means just keeping it in your backpack or your pocket or not bringing it in the first place. How do schools need to navigate this? What kind of an approach do we need when it comes to cell phones in schools? If indeed they are distracting kids from learning. And there's been a lot of disruption to learning over the past few years. Well, someone who suggests that, yeah, this is a problem and we need a better solution is uh, Sachin Maharaj, who's an assistant professor of educational leadership, policy and program evaluation at the University of Ottawa and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Maharaj, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. 
What's your sense of how widespread this is becoming in terms of schools limiting or restricting cell phone use in the classroom? Is, is it becoming more common as far as you can tell? I don't know if it's becoming more common, um, at least in terms of uh, school-wide or, or district-wide approaches to this. I know that hearing from teachers from across the country, the issues associated with phone use in schools and in the classroom, um, that is, is much more widespread and, and, and more common. But it, in terms of across the country, different uh, provinces, school districts and schools, and even classrooms within schools are all taking uh, different approaches to this issue, which, which is, I think in many ways uh, makes it much more difficult um, to address uh, some of the downsides of having phones in schools and classrooms. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's there's the obvious challenge, you know, that, that these are a distraction, can be a distraction for kids uh, and, and for teachers as well, I think. But it, it goes deeper than that. So what, what do you see as the main issues and, and the main challenges that these devices can present in terms of getting in the way of learning? Yeah. So there's a, a bunch of different things. First of all, I'll step back and say there's good evidence to indicate that the increasing use of phones and social media in particular are having real serious consequences on the mental health and well-being of teenagers. So teenagers now uh, report much higher rates of uh, poor mental health, uh, anxiety, depression, loneliness. And there's a lot of good reason to believe that um, increasing phone and social media use is a large contributor to that deterioration in their well-being. And then taking that into schools now, Having phones in schools and in classrooms sort of amplify a lot of those things. So if we think of the way phones impact social interactions, if if teenagers and kids are are on their phones, both whether it's in class or at recess or, or something like that, they're not engaging with their peers as fully as they could be. And part of the things we're trying to do in school is have students listen attentively and empathetically to each other, build a sense of community, and build meaningful relationships. And phones um, take away from all that. Just to give you a a recent example, so I was at a um, basketball tournament that uh, for my daughter's uh, school basketball team, uh, elementary school basketball team. And so we were at the tournament and in between games, I mean, I remember I have memories of back when I used to play um, basketball. It was really during these times in between games when a lot of strong social bonds were built between you know me and my teammates or mm-hmm. talking to kids from other schools and, and that sort of stuff. Whereas now you see in between games, what happens is all the kids just pull out their phones and they're all sort of in their, their own world. And so, I think having these phones in schools um, poses a lot of problems to just in terms of building a school community and and engaging relationships in school. Now, when it comes to learning, there are deleterious effects as well. So just the presence of phones in schools and classrooms makes it much harder for students to focus on, on what is happening in the classroom. There's a lot of good empirical studies that show the presence of phones, um, when students are have phones in the classroom, they learn less, they do more poorly in school, they're less able to focus for long periods of time. And we want to build in school, not just the idea of learning content, but what I call and what are referred to as habits of mind. So this ability to focus for long periods of time, to think deeply um, about what it is that's being learned, um, to resist 
uh, immediate temptations. And, and phones make all of that much more difficult. Yeah, and you say even the mere presence uh, of the phone. So even if there's a rule that says, you know, you need to be off your phones while the teacher's speaking, you need to keep them in your pocket, just them being there is is still that that distraction. Yeah, and I think, you know, all of us adults know what this is like, right? I mean, just yeah. having your phone next to you or just, you know, you're trying to do something on the computer, you're trying to focus, and then you just feel this impulse to check your phone or, you know, do something that maybe... Um, takes away from the the focusing on the task at hand. And so one of the things we need to think about is if it's difficult for us as adults to be able to resist that temptation, how much more difficult must that be for children whose brains, you know, aren't aren't as as fully developed? And so putting kids in that situation and then essentially just telling them to use their own uh, willpower, um, I think is is not going to be a recipe for success. And, And we have... I mean, I've been talking about this issue for over a decade now, and we've all been trying, as teachers, we've all been trying to, you know, teach responsible phone use and and all that sort of stuff. And I think the evidence is is in. These devices aren't designed to be used responsibly, essentially, right? The the people who make these phones and these apps put a lot, you know, billions of dollars and some of the brightest minds to make them as engaging and as addictive as possible. And we're seeing the outcome of that in our classrooms. So really, for any kind of a a policy to be effective, I mean, it would have to be sort of an all-encompassing ban then, wouldn't it? Yeah, so it definitely has to at least be a school-wide approach. You can't leave it up to individual teachers to regulate uh, their use because that just becomes impossible. The, The use is so widespread that just enforcing... You know, trying to enforce individual um, restrictions on individual students, that that becomes unworkable. It would take, you know, the teacher would spend the whole class essentially trying to do that. And so in order for this to be effective, you need the school, the leadership of the school to bring together um, the school community, including, you know, staff, uh, students and, and parents as well, and say essentially, look, you know, as educators, we know what what type of learning environment is required for students to thrive in. And this involves not having phones um, in the school during the school day. And so you need to have a, a school-wide approach um, to to restricting their use. I think from a parent's perspective, you know, we want our kids to succeed in school. We want them to be learning. And I think, you know, parents probably understand at some level, you know, that these are a distraction. But, you know, we have this convenience now where if we need to get in touch with our kids in a moment's notice, we can do so. And I know for a lot of parents that, uh, you know, not having that ability to to say, you know, I'm going to be late picking you up or whatever the the case may be, that the parents might be a little leery about losing that connection. How, How do we overcome that? Definitely, but I so that convenience of being in having the constant sort of access to your children, we need to think at, at what is the cost of that, right? Mm-hmm. So there, right? So what is the cost of that de- developmentally in terms of, of kids constantly, you know, being in contact with their parents? I think there is probably good developmental benefits, you know, for just developing more of a sense of you know autonomy and independence during the day, yeah. but also. You know, this idea, I mean, I've talked about this with my own with my own daughter, and she raises some of these same things, like what if there's an emergency? What if, you know, something bad happens or something like that? The, the need to um, for parents to constantly be in touch with their kids may also be contributing to a sense of anxiety in, in children as well, right? This, this idea that, 
there's always some sort of um, emergency or threat that may occur. And the thing is, we do have mechanisms in place to contact children if need be, right? So right now, I mean, none of my children who are in elementary school have phones. If I need to contact them, what do I do? I call the school and, you know, they can get them on the phone in a matter of minutes. Similarly, mm-hmm. if, if something happens at school or my children need to contact me, someone from the school gives me a call. And so if there is some real pressing need for children to communicate with their parents, we have those mechanisms in place. And if it doesn't really meet that threshold where you would want to actually do that and, and call the school and reach out, then maybe it's something that doesn't need to happen immediately and we can let kids just be more fully inverse, uh, immersed in their school environment during the day. Yeah, some interesting points. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Maharaj, again, thanks for your insight on all of this. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Not a problem. Happy to discuss these issues. Okay, very interesting. Uh, Sachin Maharaj, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership, Policy Program Evaluation, University of Ottawa. Uh, he's of the opinion that, that schools probably just need to say cell phones are banned. I mean, kids are, are still going to have them, whether it's before school, after school, at lunch. So I don't know if it's realistic uh, that kids keep their cell phones at home, and I don't know that it's realistic that schools be searching bags and pockets. But yeah, I mean, you know, they, they need to be out of the classroom. I think that's that seems reasonable. I don't, I don't know how we do that. And I mean, yeah, not to be that guy, but I mean, you know, back in my day, uh, nobody had cell phones. And if parents needed to reach their kids for some reason with some kind of emergency, there were ways to do that. Like this texture here says parents have always had a way to get a hold of their kids at school. It's called the phone in the office. And they pass the message on. It's not that difficult. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.